Well, hey everyone, we are in our fifth week out of the book of Acts. Our series has been titled, When the World Turned Upside Down, which I think is appropriate right now because in a lot of ways, it sort of feels like our world has also been turned upside down. But in the world of the first century, when the book of Acts was written, um, the world was less turned upside down as it was turned right side up. The way God always intended things to be, God begins to write what is broken in this world. But there is this sense today that things feel disorienting, that maybe uh, things that once felt like we could depend on or were normal, all of a sudden we're having these unexpected experiences that we weren't anticipating having. I know personally, I've had actually quite a few of these. I've had um, at-home graduation ceremonies and dance recitals. And in fact, I've even within quarantine celebrated my wedding anniversary with my wife. And I had my first time of having a quarantine haircut just last week as well. Um, I'm having all sorts of my own unexpected events that have happened. And at times, even these have felt disorientating. Um, what happens here in the text is that the disciples um, and the crowds surrounding them are about to experience something that they didn't anticipate or expect. And it began to turn the way they viewed the world entirely upside down. So last week, Pastor Brad shared with us the first 14 verses out of Acts chapter 2. And it's in those verses where we encounter the story of Pentecost, this day that changed the world forever, the day where the Holy Spirit arrived in a fresh and new way, coming upon his people and changing the world forever. Now, in the time of the Pentecost um, in the first century, um, there was uh, thousands of Jewish men and women who flooded the city of Jerusalem uh, to start by celebrating Passover and then 50 days later to celebrate the festival of Pentecost. Now, what happens in this story is that the Spirit arrives in this miraculous way and you can hear the sound of what feels like a violent, rushing wind. And the Holy Spirit descends upon the believers in the city of Jerusalem. The text says, like tongues of fire. And their response is empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak in foreign languages or other tongues. See, the Spirit arrives onto the scene in some ways that evoke all sorts of imagery that would come and flood the minds of those who have traveled to the city to celebrate Pentecost. It's imagery of the Old Testament scriptures, pictures of how God had entered into the human story in the past and now is re-entering into the human story once again, completely different, but all the same familiar. The wind of the Spirit comes rushing in. As the wind of the Spirit came upon creation, so the wind of the Spirit comes upon the new creation, the church. And when he does, his personal presence falls amidst his people. In the Old Testament, the image of flames of fire, tongues of fire, were uh, this picture of God's presence, particularly in places like the tabernacle or even the temple. But now God's presence is resting on God's people, and he is drawn near and is close. And then they respond with this empowerment to speak in foreign tongues that they did not know before, but because of the Holy Spirit, now they're speaking in languages that the people that had traveled to Jerusalem from all over the world knew. 
And see, that's important because deeply rooted in the Hebrew scriptures was this story in Genesis 11 where God dispersed the nations because of their wickedness and violence. But here God is drawing all people back to himself. And when he does, he empowers God's people to speak their native dialect, wherever they are from, bringing them together and uniting them as one. This is a miraculous event that happens, and God is doing something that will change the world forever. Now, as Pastor Brad shared this very story last week, something that came was um, something that was uh, a result of this magnificent move of God was a response of all of the crowds of people that were observing it. Something that they said um, right after all of this had happened, knowing all of the Old Testament imagery that came into it as well, um, they started with this big question, and I think it's a question that you and I would also have if we were here in this um, same circumstance, and it's this. What does this all mean? What is the wind and the fire and the tongues? What does it mean? And it's precisely there today where I'm going to continue the texts. Because the text that we have today not only answers the question, what does this mean? But it goes beyond that, and it actually says, and this is what it looks like. So today we're going to pick up the text in, in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 14. And it says this, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd, Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Now, while many people responded with a question, amazed and perplexed of all the move of God, they wondered what it meant. There was a whole other group of people that honestly just mocked these people. And um, beyond just merely mocking them like uh, they're irresponsible day drinkers or something like that, actually what they're doing here is they're degrading their humanity. Because here's the deal. At a time of a festival, particularly the festival of Pentecost, any good Jewish man or woman would fast until 10 o'clock in the morning, which was the time of morning prayer. Now, Peter is standing up and saying, um, the time of fasting is still upon us. Um, it's only nine in the morning. We have another hour of fasting to go. And what he's doing is he is confronting this degrading comment because in essence, what this mocking part of the crowd is saying is that these Galileans, these are the kind of people that wouldn't follow the fast. These are the kind of people that would be drunk at nine in the morning. In essence, it's this generalization of a people group because of where they are from, because of their socioeconomic status and class, that they are not the true and good Israelites, that they would be the kind of people that would be drinking during the day because of where they are from. And honestly, this is much like our world today where we have, um, at times, we have these divisions within our own societies based around race and class. You know, we have certain ethnic groups that have more rights and privileges than others. And honestly, this is the exact same thing that the early church is facing. And it's here that Peter is saying, don't look at us as if that is who we are. That is not what's happening here. It's only nine in the morning. We're actually participating in the festival. We are a part of the people of God. That is not what's happening. But here, I'm going to tell you what is happening. And so now he 
sort of dismisses the character slam on him and all the other fellow disciples, but he moves into the deeper question and he begins to answer the curiosity of the amazed and the perplexed in the crowd. This is what he has to say. And honestly, the next portion of scripture is about 20 verses long. And I think the best way to go about this is for me, not just to tell you what it says, but to actually just read Peter's response, start to finish. Now, this is when it's really great that we're on video because you can literally pause me and maybe you could read this yourself. Or if you get distracted in the middle of this, you could pause it and start it over and do it all over again. Or maybe after I'm done reading all 20 verses, you can literally just pause it and take a deep breath because of how much is coming at you. But my encouragement and the reason why I want to read this start to finish is because I really think that the, the whole of Peter's message needs to be heard all together. And not only does it need to be heard all together, but the reason why is because it sort of beautifully weaves this message together that leads these both perplexed and confused people, but also these mockers to a changed heart, to a new response. And without the message as a whole, we're going to miss the opportunity to have a heart that's changed. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read starting at verse 16 and go all the way to verse 36. So take whatever posture you want, whether it's just to take a moment and pause and rest and and just let me speak it over you, or maybe you want to read with me. Whatever it would be, I'm going to start reading the text now. Verse 16 says this, No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, you will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received 
from the Father, the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So you might need to pause me again just to catch your breath. (laughs) There's a lot here. And what an inspiring end. Could you imagine if Pastor Brad or myself or anyone really ended the sermon um, the same way? Um, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, the end. In a way, we could look at that and think, um, with all joking aside, we could look at that and think, gosh, that seems a little harsh and maybe even caustic. But I don't think that's the case. I think what's happening here is Peter, in a gentle but very firm way, is he's telling these people the truth. And as he's telling them the truth, his desire for them is understanding and freedom. See, why he constructs his message the way he does is because his hearers had a much better understanding of the Old Testament and specifically the prophetic works than I do, and I I would guess many of you do as well. Deeply rooted in their psyche and their worldview was this understanding of how God has worked throughout human history and the echoes of the prophets and how God would work in what was called the age to come. Now, masterfully, he crafts this picture from both the prophet Joel and the king and prophet David and painting this picture for us as to what God is up to in history, both right in this moment, but also what's to come and why that's all able to happen, namely the person of Jesus. So I'm going to summarize real quickly um, this this message of Joel, and I'm going to summarize real quickly the message of David. And the reason why it's important for us to do that, which I know it's like, what is ancient prophecy of thousands of years old um, have to do with my day and age today? And I promise you, I will get there. I promise I will tie it all together. But what happens in, when Peter references these two things, it leads the, the crowd to a response that changes them forever. And so obviously there's something powerful in this message. So why does he reference Joel? Well, the prophetic work Joel is this short Um, but incredibly influential book, particularly in the minds of the Jews in the first century. Now, in it, the prophet has a vision of what's called the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is both past events when God has saved his people and confronted evil, but it's also a future time when God would ultimately defeat evil and save the world. Now, the prophet Joel has a vision of both past and future events of God's judgment and justice coming into the world and eliminating sin and evil once and for all. And his response to that is that he's literally terrified. And Joel, um, he, he says, oh, woe to us the day of the Lord, who can survive it? And it's in this place where he encourages um, and leads the people of Israel to a time of repentance. And repentance was this turning back to God and turning away from their selfishness and their sin. Now, as the people respond accordingly, and they respond this way, um, God speaks again through the prophet Joel, and he tells the people this, rend your hearts and not your garments. Now, 
What is he saying here? What he's saying is that it's possible to change all the external circumstances of your life and your behaviors um, with the drive and desire just to get out of trouble. But what God's really after is your heart. Um, God wants your affection. He wants your love. And it's from that place when you give your heart to him and he begins to change and soften and mold your heart, well, that's when a change and transform life can come. And so what God is speaking to them here is that he desires not just for external moralistic behavior to change, but he desires for their hearts to be his. Now, it's within this context that we find the passage that Peter cites. What comes in this passage is this prophetic vision of a future day of the Lord. God is a gracious and compassionate God. He is slow to anger and he is full of love. And whenever God's people respond to God with a repentant heart, God responds to them with his love, life, and abundance. He wants to give them a future with hope, restoration, healing, and unity. And so this is now the vision of the future day of the Lord that God gives to Joel and that Joel gives to the people. In the future, he sees three things. First is this, that there will be a day of the Lord coming where God will deal with the evil and the injustices in this world. Second, he sees that a day will come where God will pour out his spirit on all people indiscriminately. And third, a day of the Lord is coming when he will restore the devastated land and renew all of creation. So when Peter quotes this text, what he is saying is that the day of the Lord has come and you missed it. Peter continues by quoting the prophet and King David, and he's going to continue this series of thought. And what he says when he quotes David's writings is in essence to make this emphatic point that Jesus is both Lord or King and Messiah, our Savior. The suffering and the death of Jesus was foretold, and they had missed it. Now think back upon the first day of the Lord, when God would deal with the evil and injustice in the world. That was what would happen first before God would pour out his spirit upon all his people. Now, one of the problems in the whole story and one of the reasons why Joel was terrified in the first place was because he realized that the evil wasn't just out there, but the evil was in here as well. And the question of who can survive this if the evil is inside of us, well, the answer is no one, save Jesus. See, what Jesus did when he died on the cross, what he did through his life and eventual death, burial, and resurrection is to absorb and take in all of the evil and the injustice and all of the wrath that was supposed to be poured out onto us. Instead, he absorbed it in himself as a sacrifice laid down his life so that the coming day of the Lord, where God's spirit would be poured out upon us and his renewal of all creation would come, that is why he had to die for us. That is the door that he 
opened up for us. And what Peter is saying in quoting Joel, what Peter is saying in quoting David, is that Jesus came and absorbed all of the hatred, violence, and evil of this world. That day of the Lord that was meant for us now came upon him. And as a result, the day of the Lord that would come, the day where God's spirit was poured out on all of God's people, has arrived and we are sitting right in the middle of it. And it's in this place now, with this understanding that the crowds had, that the text continues this way. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the apostles, Brother, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to that number that day. I think something that stands out to me in this passage right here is that notice that the miraculous power encounter with the Holy Spirit in the beginning of this section didn't change anyone in the crowd's hearts. It was Jesus. Not until they realized who Jesus was and what he had done for them were they cut to the heart. Did something inside of them begin to change? Now they ask the question, but this time it's from a much different place. This time they're not mocking They're not even amazed or perplexed. They're challenged, convicted on the deepest level. And they ask the disciples, brothers, what shall we do? Now, there's a recognition of the work of the Spirit in this place, that God has brought all different kinds of people together, not just to tolerate one another, but to be family. Peter responds that, They should repent and be baptized, which we've already talked about what repentance looks like. But then he goes on later on and he says, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Now, it sounds a bit like escapism. It sounds a bit like Peter is saying, oh no, everything's going terrible. Run away and flee and hide and go to the hills. But what we see that will come next is that's obviously not what Peter is saying. What he is saying is that there's a system of values that this generation has, and honestly, that every subsequent generation throughout all time espouse, and that it's corrupted. Something that's corrupted is something that was, in essence, at one time good, but bent and twisted for the purposes that it wasn't meant for. There's a value system that the world has to offer that is not for the people of God. And so what Peter is doing is he's warning them of what those things are, and he's inviting them to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So in essence, what Peter is saying is that he isn't calling them to escape the empire, but he is calling them to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven in the empire. And he is calling you and I to do the exact same thing. So the question is, how? Well, what does this look like? And the next five verses will give us a picture for us to work from. Verse 42 says this, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching 
and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. A couple of thoughts about this community and what does it look like to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven living in the empire. First is this. They were deeply committed to being both theological and relational. I think sometimes we err too far to one side or the other. We can be theologically correct about certain things, but completely avoid of love. We can maybe list off all the right theological statements, but do it in a way that's violently hateful to other people. And really what Jesus is after is that we would be both. And that the work of the Holy Spirit draws us to a deep theological, not just understanding, but relationship with God, but that it works its way out into our relationships with one another. This was a community that spent time every day studying and wrestling and applying the teachings of Jesus. And they were a community that at the same time was committed to doing that, but to doing it together. And not just wrestling through these theological ideas together, but to actually just live life together. Now, remember, they were diverse. And they, that means that they would have a lot of conflicts and problems and potentially issues along the way. But the thing is, is that they were committed to one another. And they were committed to Jesus. The question is, are you, am I, are we as deeply committed to both of these ideas, a pursuit of God and a pursuit of one another? They were. Now, one of the things that allowed them to be able to have this kind of pursuit um, was that they saw that their faith was more in terms of we and not as much in terms of me. And within our own cultural backdrop, we strive for an independence and an autonomy and an individuality. We want this free expression of me, thinking that my actions um, are completely independent from other people, which isn't true. And I think quarantine, and particularly COVID, um, is bringing this even more to light for us. In the season that we're in, we must practice speaking um, ourselves the truth, that we, you and I, are intimately and intricately connected. All of our actions are connected with one another. And when we feel like maybe our own individual rights are being infringed upon, it's worth thinking that maybe it's worth it if it's for the benefit of somebody else. See, Jesus was always willing to let his rights be infringed upon if it meant a blessing for another person. And if you don't believe me, just go to Philippians 2, and that's what you're going to see. We have to have something um, deeper than just a social responsibility. We're actually told that we are a part of a body. And so in this strange way, um, in a deeply spiritual sense, we are connected to one another, whether we want to be or not. And so for us, 
I think this reality is something, particularly because how much our world and our culture tells us the opposite, we need to practice even just speaking this and reminding ourselves that we are a part of a bigger family. We are interconnected, and the decisions that we make affect the people around us, and that there is no real decision that we can make on our own that will not affect somebody else. I think it's not only healthy practicing speaking that over ourselves, but I think it's healthy for us to also speak that over one another. One of the other things we see um, in this early church community is that they practiced sharing. And I know that sounds really oversimplistic. Um, it's something that I'm constantly trying to teach my three daughters to share, share, share. Um, but this is actually countercultural. It was then, and it is now. I think sometimes we lose sight of this because it sounds simple, and it doesn't sound very practical. Um, in some ways, it sounds um, like, uh, like an idealistic vision of how we're to act with one another. But this early church, they not only shared life, food, and faith together, they also shared their failure together. And I think that's something that we have to read between the lines here, but it's there because, hear me in this, if there is financial need or if there are people who can actually work and provide for themselves in this community of faith, they're dealing with and wrestling with some level of failure. Now, nobody comes to them and says, you need to work harder, try harder, do better. Um, what we actually see here is those who have an abundance or an excess sell what they have to help care for the needs of those who are less fortunate than them. They see that the blessings that they have received are gifts to be a blessing to one another. And this passage challenges me because it causes me to think about the excess that I have in my life and what if my thought process, what if our thought process wasn't how can I invest the excess that I have to make more, but instead who can I give this to to help empower them and lift them up and build some future hope into them. In essence, it's the thought that even with our financial resources, the question isn't about how much can I hold on to to take care of me and mine, but it is how much can I give away to bless and serve others. That is the way of Jesus. And that is the kind of life that only the Holy Spirit can draw someone into. Only the Holy Spirit can change and transform our hearts to not just do that, but to want to do that, which is so much more um, important than just doing the thing. It's the change of our behaviors, of our affections, of our heart. That's what happens when the Spirit invades our life, and that's what the community of faith should look like with one another. Now, I'll end with this. Um, this early church really did turn the world upside down. And when I say that, as we've said all series long, it's not just that they turned the world upside down, but that they turned it right side up at the same time. Now, in 165 AD, an epidemic similar to like what we're going through right now swept through the Roman Empire. And interestingly enough, after that, there was a series of other epidemics that also swept through the Roman Empire. And you know, without an understanding of the germs and bacteria and how they work, they could not stop the virus's spread. There was literally no hope but to just wait it out. And so for 15 years, an epidemic would sweep through. 
And this devastated cities within the Roman Empire, but it also decimated rural areas alike, decimated families and towns. And overall, it's probably one of the reasons why the um, Empire of Rome eventually even fell. Within the context of all of that, there were Christian communities all over the world. They were also affected physically, but there was something different about them. There was something about their faithful witness in the midst of a global epidemic that was just flat out different. And it began to change the lives of people and it caused the spread of Christianity throughout the world. In fact, there's a historian, his name is William McNeil, and he looks back upon those times and he has this to say about the way Christians thought and behaved amidst global pandemics. An advantage Christians enjoyed over the pagans was that their teaching of their faith made life meaningful even amid sudden and surprising death. Even a shattered remnant of survivors who had somehow made it through war and pestilence or both could find warm, immediate, and healing consolation in the vision of a heavenly existence from those missing relatives and friends. Christianity was, therefore, a system of thought and feeling thoroughly adapted to a time of trouble in which hardship, hardship, disease, and violent death commonly prevailed. He later recognized in his historical account that it is precisely because of the way the community of Jesus behaved in the midst of global crisis that our faith exploded into the world. This kind of living, although it's simple to understand, it's actually profoundly difficult to live this out. Um, this way of living together is deep and powerful and meaningful. And I believe it has the power to actually change the world. I believe it has the power to actually change lives. I think when we embrace the move of Jesus in our life the way they did, particularly in times of crisis, and we have faithful witnesses in our own history of people doing that before, not only does it um, impact the way we go through difficulty and trial, but it's a witness, a faithful witness to the world around us that Jesus is Lord, that our hope is in him and not our circumstances, that there is a coming day of the Lord where he will restore all that is broken in this world and bring about life-giving change and renewal and transformation of creation that in such a way that we will never experience a circumstance like this again. That is the deep hope that I hold on to. That is the deep hope that Peter is sharing with the thousands of people that are listening to him. And it is the deep hope that this early community of Jesus followers held on to, even in the midst of some of the most difficult and trying circumstances of their life. And friends, this is the deep hope that we have as Christians and followers of Jesus that we can hold on to like an anchor through the midst of even a global pandemic. So now we're gonna move into a time of response where we're going to worship by singing. And we're gonna sing one song together and then we're gonna come back and I'm gonna offer you the benediction.
Bye. 
Hey, so now I want to offer you the benediction. I'm going to extend my hands to you, and my encouragement for you is just to open your hands, which is a posture of receiving. May you be the kind of people that are deeply committed to your faith and to one another. May you be the kind of people that see life not just through the lens of what you can get, but through the lens of what you can give others. And may you be the kind of people that practice sharing a radical generosity to come alongside of and to support even the least of these around us. And may you hold on to hope unswervingly, even in some of the most challenging and difficult times. Amen.